0: Hey, here's my requisite shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. Go to athleticbrewing.com. If you use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, as they are not an official sponsor of the show. I just get points towards swag and beer. Give it a shot. The free wave is my favorite. Go get some
1: yeah and i have that tendency to want to exhaust the research just because i know i'm gonna leave 90 percent of it on the cutting room floor that's like that old saying about writing it's like well how do you write a novel it's like well it's like doing a sculpture of an elephant you take a block of stone you just chip away everything that doesn't look like an elephant <laughs> that's kind of like what writing a book like this is
0: Oh hey CNF, it's CNF Pod, creative Nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara, good for me. You take a good adventure tale, Reed Mittenbuehler has a story to tell, man. It's Wanderlust, an eccentric explorer, an epic journey, a lost age. It's published by Mariner Books. It's about Peter Froykin. He's at the center of Reed's story, a story that turns more into a biography of the 20th century carried on the back of the mule known as Peter Froiken. It's a juicy book of a Dutch explorer who spent roughly 20 years among the Inuit in Greenland, weathering deadly expeditions and illustrating the brutality of living near the Arctic. But his life also spans the golden age of Hollywood... Uh, tangling with the Nazis, Uh, the $64,000 man or whatever that game show was. I mean, that's in here. Bonkers. Anyway, Reed also is the author of Bourbon Empire, the past and future of America's whiskey and wild minds. The artisan rivalries that inspired the golden age of animation. His writing has appeared in Airmail, The Atlantic... Slate and whiskey advocate. You can find him at Twitter. At Twitter. On Twitter at Reed Mitten Bueller, or on Instagram with the more badass handle, Mittenbueller. You can learn more about him and his work at ReadMittenbueller dot com. Bueller, Bueller. Make sure you head it over to hey for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. It's now on Substack. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. Still first of the month. No spam. Can't beat it. This is how we rage against the algorithm. If you dig the show, consider sharing it with your networks so we can grow the pie and get this and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts, so the wayward CNFer might say, "Shit, I'll give that a shot." Also, you could go to Patreon.com/CNFPod and maybe think about dropping in a few bucks into the hat if you glean some value from what we churn and burn here at CNF Pod HQ. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. So in this conversation, we talk about how Reed stumbled across Freuchen. How Reed hates writing, but he kind of loves it too. And how he organizes the research by character, chronology, and theme. Oh, how can we forget the almighty note card, hashtag John McPhee. Let's get after it, CNFers. Here's Reed Mittenbuehler. (laughs) Bueller. always drawn to those kind of people. Yeah, what what drew you to Freuchen?
1: You know, the way I discovered Freuchen, it's an interesting story. I have a friend He had recently become a member of the Explorers Club, and it's on New York's Upper East Side, and it's this old mansion, and when you go in, it's like this throwback to a distant age, right? You've got Persian rugs, you've got all these artifacts from old maps on the walls, stuffed leather chairs, big fireplaces. He's like, you've got to see this place. We'll catch up over a couple of whiskeys. We go after hours. So it kind of feels like we're doing something illicit, like we've broken in. We go to a place called the Trophy Room, which is on the very top floor. And it's full of, you know, there's the height of a Siberian tiger, rumored to have eaten 48 men, stuffed down for a pen we've got tusks. I think Teddy Roosevelt, who was a member, might have donated. We're sitting there catching up. So it takes a while for me to notice this painting over the fireplace of, of Freuchen. I didn't know it at the time. He's got this crazy beard. He's got like a pirate's peg leg. He's wearing a suit. It's kind of a goofy painting. And I think, you know, we're joking. We're drinking. We're like, what have you done? You must have done something to get your portrait in a place like this. I go up to the painting. has his name underneath it on a plaque. So I look him up. And this story, its this this awesome story explodes. It's as if Mark Twain wrote this guy's life. You know, he has written thousands of pages of published and unpublished memoirs and you know, all this stuff. And as I'm learning more and more about him, what really draws me to this story is, is him. He's just a really interesting person. He's kind of a heterodox thinker. He's all over the place. You can't really put him in any specific column. He's got all these adventures. And there's a real Where's Waldo aspect to his adventures. Here he is in the Arctic. Here he is in the White House with Herbert Hoover. Here he is with Gene yeah. Harlow and Golden Age. Here he is fighting the Nazis. Here he is winning a game show. He's like... You know, the Dose Do- Equis beer commercials and the most interesting <laughs> now, he's that guy in real life. But what really draws me to him and my goal with the book wasn't really biography so much, although, you know, it says biography and people have described it as a biography. But I really just wanted to use Freikin as a lens because I realized that the entire 20th century really collapses down to the scale of of his life. And you can use him as a lens for exploring that time period, all the political, economic, and cultural forces that shaped it, you know, be it media and golden age, Hollywood, exploring, and nationalism, colonialism, like all these different things. He somehow touches on those topics and you can learn about them in a very interesting, new, unique way through him. And so I was like, you know, I'm really writing about the 20th century. I'm really writing about this big thing that collapsed down to this smaller thing. And that's what, you know, I just think that helps give books resonance and a coherency that, that's nice to have when you're reading. So that's what really drew me to him is how he as a, as a small figure in history symbolized so much that was a lot larger than him.
0: At what point in your research did that degree of 20th century world building reveal itself to you and became more, more than just Freuchen. It was like you said, he was like a vector to talk about the 20th century.
1: It was right at the beginning. So Freuchen, who was born in 1886, he lived at the very tail end of what there's different names for it, but a lot of people call it the heroic age of exploration this time period which you know for centuries before people would look at maps and there's whole huge sections of the maps and people in the western world had no idea what was there you know and they'd fill in these sections of maps with pictures of dragons or sea monsters or you know whatever big blank spaces and you know people were increasingly going there and learning and spreading this knowledge about about what was there and when Freykin's born that age is kind of ending in a lot of ways i mean people really are getting to all the great corners of the world, mapping it out, figuring out what's going on. And so you've got this group of explorers who in a lot of ways were fighting for the last scraps of glory. It's like, who's going to be the first person to reach the North Pole? Who's going to be the first person to reach the South Pole? Who's going to be the first person to reach this really tall mountain peak, whatever. And you know the stakes are still just as big. People are dying on these expeditions, but the payoffs, the glory is getting smaller and smaller because the big stuff is, is being accomplished. In that bubble, in that moment, you see a lot of colonialism and you see a lot of nationalism that is going to end up shaping the rest of the century as nations, which are sponsoring these expeditions, in a lot of cases, not all. A lot of them were um, sponsored by scientific groups, are funding these things in order to get glory, in order to claim the last bits of land. And you'll see uh, these other confrontations later in the century, such as World War II or World War I coming out of a lot of those impulses, you'll also see things like climate change. You know, Frieden was talking about climate change, not calling it that specifically, but talking about changes to the climate and so forth as early as the 1930s. And that's an outgrowth of industrialization, which is also fueling this drive to explore and fueling uh, what people are doing to the planet. So very early on in his story, you start seeing kind of these little Easter eggs of stuff that is very much still affecting us today or in the case of climate change, really starting to come home to roots where people are really realizing it. And before you realized it in the 30s and the 50s, he, started, he was talking about how it was affecting people's lives. But the reaction to him, the response was often very muted. It was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's interesting, whatever. Moving on, let's talk about something else. But he was a little bit like the canary in the coal mine And we just didn't take that message in a way we probably should have. And now we're starting to really see the ramifications of it. So a lot of it started to come together for me very early on with his very earliest expeditions to Greenland.
0: Yeah. And uh, speaking of those Easter eggs, be it climate change or even later in the book where the, the, the Thule area of Greenland, they were starting to take on more material comforts. And you really get a sense of how you know, materialism and consumerism does not necessarily lead to – it might lead to some better quality of life in some ways. But in a lot of ways, it, it totally depletes sort of the inherent happiness of a certain group of people. Uh, and I that's just something that we're totally – seeing today in this sort of capitalistic world that we live in, that uh, we, we try to just, that the hedonistic treadmill of more, more, more doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness. And it, I kind of got that pulse, you know, through that towards the end of the book as well.
1: Yeah. And what really attracted me to that idea was that, but it's also very complicated, right? In that you have areas of life that are improving, you know, and Almost nobody would contest that they're improving and then other things that really aren't improving. And so it's always this very delicate balancing act. One of the interesting things about Freuchen and the way he wrote about these issues is that he wasn't particularly sentimental. Like He would talk about the downsides of colonialism, but then he would also talk about positive things that had happened from this cultural exchange between these two different groups or, or many different groups in a way that, you know, today could maybe get him in trouble, but it's refreshing in a way from him because he's just very objective and very realistic. And he's talking about change and gets to something that today I think we would be, you know, I think we would be better off by acknowledging more is, you know, acknowledging progress, but then acknowledging when certain areas of progress have side effects that aren't as good. You know, it's like, it's not black or white. It's not all or none. It's like, these things are all exchanges. And in the book, we talk a little about, what you know, economists sometimes call the progress paradox, where you'll improve a life in a certain way, or you'll improve standards of living in a certain way, but there's some, there's some drawback, there's some negative, And we have to acknowledge that negative and try to account for it as well. And sometimes people want to ignore that. You know, oh, it's progress. We're just marching on. And it's like, no, we have lost something. And there's that message, you know, in the novels of Marilyn Robinson, you know, the Gilead novels, there's this wonderful idea that the past, which is so often seen as the source of our discontents, also contain remedies to those things too. Like there are good things from the past that we've lost that it would be worthwhile to maybe restore while acknowledging that we've improved in certain ways. And so it gets complicated. And I like that nuance. I like that complexity. I saw that in Freyken's story. It's something I really tried to make sure, you know, kept above water in the book.
0: Yeah, and it, to, that, to that point of, of of progress as well there are oftentimes in in greenland where there would be yeah. uh, depending on the winter there might be these ex- prolonged periods of famine and families or mothers might have to make the decision to actually like kill their children or kill babies which is and then you figure like you know decades later because of that sort of cross pollination of the more uh, industrialized countries with the indigenous peoples of Greenland like that that didn't like famines weren't to to that extreme where they didn't have to you know commit infanticide just to survive so it's like there's an instance of like okay there there is a, a net gain in that sense
1: yeah clear upside and that's something you know during my research I reached out to the Inuit Circumpolar Council which is kind of a pan-Inuit group talked to a number of people from communities about these issues. And it's, you know, it's fascinating to get their perspective. I sent an early copy of the manuscript to some just like, hey, I'm presenting these issues that affected your community and whatnot. And to get that sort of feedback from one woman told me, she goes, it's really good that you emphasize just how rough life was back in those years when a lot of you know, especially in far north Greenland, were extremely isolated. The life expectancy was something like 28, about 28, according to some estimates, um, because of famines mm-hmm. and a number of other things. Like, and one woman really stressed to me. She goes, "It can sometimes be a little condescending to hear outsiders, you know, Westerners, talk about us like museum pieces. Like, oh, we shouldn't have, cor-, you know, using terms like corrupted them or to And she goes, "Why can't we adapt?" And, and come into the modern world just like any other group, but still remain Inuit. Like people look at this as it's inherently some kind of ancient culture. And she's like, it's not. I mean, we're people too. We want a lot of these things. We want these comforts. Um, but there's an idea sometimes that we should be denied that. Like we shouldn't have been touched. Like we shouldn't have, there should have been no interaction and that interaction couldn't have been an exchange, right? We take some things from your culture that we like. And then there are aspects of ours that are worth knowing about as well. And that was Franken's attitude. You know, Franken didn't go there to conquer or to force European culture. It was really an exchange. It was to learn. And there were things he loved about, Inuit culture and he was adopted by it. So he was very much part of it. And he lived there for almost 20 years, but there are also things he liked about Europe. I mean, it wasn't all or none for him. He, he was kind of piecemeal and he saw it. He understood that, that, that flows two ways.
0: What did you know about Freudkin? Kind of going into your research, and then like what surprised you and revealed itself to you over time as like these uh, more sort of tentpole events through which you could start to build the skeleton of a narrative.
1: You know, one of the things that 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 really grabbed me by the throat the most was, but just how much his era echoes with our own you know people like to say and it's to the point where it's almost a cliche by this point history repeats itself et cetera, et etc but through him you really do see it i mean even in the way people use language and you realize like people from the past weren't that much different than us you know they weren't morally superior they weren't morally inferior they were you know you really see those echoes and how it really is a cycle and then you worry because, especially in the lead up to World War II, and then after World War II, you see all these lessons that humanity learned you know, in this great fire of conflict that was the war, and then built in a lot of ways a, a, a better world. You know, the UN and, and understanding how nations should deal with each other and how we should interact and cooperate. And you had a period in human history of relative great peace. And now you see that all the people who have learned those lessons and learned the lessons from that conflict are, are pretty much dead and have died off. And then a lot of the people even that learned those great lessons at their knees have, have also kind of faded out of the picture. And you start seeing a lot of the same forces leading into World War II in resurgence. You're seeing authoritarianism, more nationalism, And it's just like, you have to ask yourself, are these things that are hardwired into humans? Like we learned the lessons, but now we're forgetting. It's like a child who has to learn by burning their hand on the stove. Mm. That generation that burnt its hand on the stove and then corrected for the problem, they're now gone. And the new generation is young and really didn't feel it in their bones. And it's like, it's like, does it just need to happen again? They need to burn their hand on the stove. And is that the cycle of history where... It's really not every generation, but it's every three or four generations once a really much older group fades away. That's something that I was thinking about, not to be too gloomy on the, on the show. But um, yeah, I found myself thinking about a lot while, while looking at how his time really mirrors our own in just some pretty amazing ways.
0: And when you're doing biography, sometimes the it, it can be... Not uh not myopic's the wrong word, but like you're taking you're looking at like one particular figure and sometimes the tendency is to be like, Okay, I'm you just focus on them hardcore one hundred percent, but then there's um an important part of world building involved. And you've you've already alluded to that a bit. And um and how in a in a sense, it's more of a biography of a world, and he's uh, something of a vector. But in, over the course of you know writing this book, and even reading biographies on your own for your own pleasure and your own research, like how important is world building to to uh, to building the you know, sort of the the story around a particular subject?
1: I think it's huge because you want to create a space, a world that readers your audience can escape into just for the mechanics of reading and I'm always thinking about the pleasures of reading and I try to be it's almost like customer service to your reader right like I'm doing yeah. this for you to give you a place and people it's interesting to think about novels that way and novels do a very good job of that and so narrative nonfiction um, you know part of the duty to entertain or whatever I try to keep that forefront in mind it's like bring them into that world with a lot of biographies and I love reading biographies, but sometimes you can see certain conventions in a lot of them where a writer will very dutifully because, you know, it's about someone's life. So they want to get a lot of details and facts down for posterity. So, you know, we've all seen it when we cracked open a biography and the first chapter has to do with the main characters, great grandparents migrating somewhere or something like that. And it's just (laughs) a lot of prologue. You're not driving people in the action and it can, you can lose, I think a lot of readers very fast. So, I thought of freaking It was less about the biography aspect, and more about he's a character. He's a character in a world, and the lesser important details, like certain things about his childhood, really should only be brought up when they service the core of him as a, as a person. Uh, there was one review of the book that, that complimented me on that. I was, I was happy to see it, where they're like, "Yeah, you know, he just skips over most of the childhood, you know, comma which was probably a good thing, and just jumps right into it." And then I was like. Later on in the book, I did back up and go back to his childhood to kind of fill you in so that you could learn a little more about where he's coming from and about his family and things that are important also to create that world, uh, but not dwelling on them. Um, It can sometimes be disappointing, I I think, with biographies when biographers treat it a little bit like a police report, you know, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know, and it can be just names and dates kind of history you really want to create an experience for the readers because that's ultimately what's going to lodge the story and the lessons and everything that goes along with it in their brain is if they can get lost in it just a little bit. So I try not to be too sterile.
0: Now along the journey of researching and writing a book um, and even predating that, there are always books that can be referred to as mentor texts. Uh, Were there any particular, books in this genre that were kind of a, a North star for you as you were setting upon this particular journey?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. So there was a, a sentiment that I was kind of a North star for me on this journey. But as far as books in particular, you know, you've got the whole range of writers that are influences. And you're, you know, for me, I take little bits and pieces from each of them. You know, on your podcast before, it's kind of funny. I hear a lot of writers mention John McPhee, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know, which is kind of it one is. of those people the only people who, who really ever talk about them are writers it seems like but everyone just 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 adores them I look at the narrative nonfiction, of you know a lot of New Yorker writers Susan Orlean and Jill Lepore uh, because they are both wonderful writers but also funny like humorous um, and there was something that was actually very humorous about Franken's story so I wanted to capture that so I would a lot of times pull down Joe Lepore's The Secret History of Wonder Woman, which is about the man who created, you know, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman comics, just to kind of remind myself of, of humor and getting that into the story. Rich Cohen is another writer that I really, I really admire because he really writes like a novel. Like when you're brought into history, especially um, The Fish That Ate the Whale about Samuel Zemere, a very descriptive book that I've read several times and it's just a joy to read. I I like a lot of his writing. And then you've got your biggies like Alfred Lansing and Walter Lord, you know, these kind of great figures in narrative nonfiction. Alfred Lansing did the Endurance book um, about Ernest Shackleton and Walter Lord, you know, books like A Night to Remember about the sinking of the Titanic. Those are good examples just to remind me, you know, how to move through action and create scenes um, which I think helps readers absorb the writing a little bit better. And then you've got, you know, your figures like, for me, inspiration, I had an early personal experience with the writer Tom Wolf when I was in high school. A mm-hmm. uh, teacher in high school took me aside and a friend was like, you know, this guy is going to be speaking tomorrow night about architecture. Tom Wolf wrote from Baja Star house, house, and you guys should just go. It was a nice moment when a high school teacher encouraged a couple of students. And I remember going, that was the first time I realized, like, oh, like, you know, I read his book after that and I really enjoyed his talk. And he was very gracious during the talk and afterwards. So, and, you know, David Halberstam was another writer when I was in college, came to speak and had a big effect on me because I later devoured his books. So those are some of the influences for me.
0: And what becomes the the challenge to create those? those really animating scenes in nonfiction and specifically things from uh, a century ago or more and trying to build those scenes. So they do feel cinematic and alive, even though they happened, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah. So, and I
1: was really lucky with this book because Franken, as I said before, he had thousands of pages of published and unpublished memoirs. The other thing is that on expeditions, Old explorers, a lot of them were kind of like celebrities in a way, and they needed to be celebrities in order to get funding for the next expedition. So they all had book deals and would publish and would lecture. After their expeditions, they would go on these circuits and talk. They would get hired to write accounts of all their adventures. So there was a wealth of material out there where they were painstakingly recreating all these details. And I would gather all of these reports and all of these things together so that I had a lot of details to work with. So I could insert things into this text like you would normally see in a novel, like about what the smoke looked like on a cooking fire or what the air smelled like, or, you know, the crust on the fur of their clothing after they got off the ice cap after, you know, many, many months out and out in the middle of nowhere i had those kind of details that i was lucky enough to insert into this text with you know certainty that like it really happened so that it could check the box of you know being accurate it needs to be that for for nonfiction, but feel a little more novelistic i, I was lucky to just have a treasure trove of
0: material and when you because this is a, a big beefy book and it's uh always a challenge to keep your head around all your research so you can best access things uh for yourself but also for fact checkers and and such as you're trying to structure your narrative so uh you know how did you go about you know organizing your research and going about your research so you could you know sit down and you know, try to, <laughs> try to execute. It.
1: So, and I, I've had some writer friends make fun of me for this because I'm very old school. I use note cards nice. and for this book and my other books, I'll have thousands of note cards. And as far as, and I, and I organize them you know, I've got the source of whatever the thing is, and then I'll write in a theme and then I'll write in a character and I'll write in chronology on it. And that way I can move these things around. And as I'm organizing the book, I'm often thinking about it like architecture. And you know, everyone's got a different approach and some work better for some people than others. I know some writers yeah. who just, just begin and they throw it all out there and then they do the winnowing down later. I like to do a lot of outlining because I, you know, there's a precision that just works well for me. I think of like architecture and I think of every little point in the book like a brick. Where does this brick go? And this one could go here. You're you're Tetrising it just a little bit. And the three guiding principles I use, I have, you know, character, what characters. And then I have chronology. So as I'm organizing, I kinda I kind of know. And you can break the chronology a little bit, like you can call back, you can have a flashback, call it that, or sometimes even a flash forward, although I'm a little more careful about careful about those. And then theme. And this book, you know, has a number of themes like uh, wanderlust you've got the climate change stuff you've got political themes and so there are some places i'm like, okay where do i group this well this should go here because of the chronology but i should shift it a little bit over here because i want to put it with this theme and we'll take a little moment here to ex- explore this theme and those are the three things that are kind of helping me figure out where to put all these different blocks so that's how i think from an organizational perspective um, I have a writer friend here in LA. He's a, a screenwriter. We are talking about this the other night. I was asking him, how much do you outline? He had just finished writing a pilot for a, a project. He had a 20-page outline for a 60-page pilot. And we were laughing about it. That's you know, like a third of the, the book. And he made a comment that really lodged with me. And he goes, you know, I think a lot of writers, uh, they use writing to work out their own issues. You know, because they're almost using this therapy, especially in novels and and and." You know, fiction writing. Yeah, and he goes, memoir too. yeah, memoir too. He goes, they're really just using it. It's their therapy. It's like a thing that they're using to get stuff out of their head and just work with their own head. And he's like, I think of it more as like I have a duty to almost a customer. Like I need to enter entertain. And he goes, I really that just to me wastes so much time, and it's not a waste for them because they're using it for kind of this other purpose. But I'm trying to construct a story that will entertain, educate, you know, whatever people. So he goes. I really don't want to be sitting there and going back and redoing things because I figured out a better way. I want to sit there early on and just organize. And you'd think that someone with that mindset might be writing, you know, superhero movies or something like that. But he's actually writing like psychological, very kind of character-driven um, stories dealing with interesting sorts of themes. So um, that really stuck in my head when when he said that because I realized I'm a little bit the same way where. I love writing and it is a way sometimes to, I also hate writing, <laughs> but but it's a way to, for me, I love exploring the topics and going down all these little rabbit holes. And with a book like this, there's a million rabbit holes. I mean, just here we are in golden age, Hollywood, here we are in the Danish resistance, here we are with Sir Hubert Wilkins as he invents this basically religion that has an influence on L. Ron Hubbard, Jimi Hendrix and Jerry Garcia, <laughs> you know, just Rabbit holes, right? Yeah. So I love that process of it, but I also really want to have readers enjoy the book. I've had some writer friends say to me things like, oh, you know, I'm just doing it really for myself. Uh, I don't really care if anyone reads it. And I just don't get that. I'm like, I want people to read it. I want them to enjoy it. I want, and I want them to not think about how I'm putting the story together. Or that's like Carpenter. I don't want you to think about how the grooves are aligned or anything. I just want you to enjoy the chair. So that's how I'm always thinking about it.
0: Well, yeah. And books are expensive. You know, it's like, you know, this, your book's $45 hardcover. And it's like, all right, Getting that's started. not. That's not an insignificant uh, amount of money. And so like to your point of like customer service, like if I'm going to spend nearly $50 on a a hardcover book, like I'm going to want to be entertained and hopefully maybe (laughs) uh, return to it uh, every now and again. Uh, But yeah, it's to, to your point of you know, wanting to really serve the the reader or the customer. (laughs) And it sounds like that's kind of a sore point for you too.
1: No, the scary, well, the scary thing is, you know, especially with the pandemic and supply chain stuff, this is, I think, going to be a new normal in publishing. I've had a lot of conversations because I was starting to get texts from friends and things, I saw my book and I was like, hey man, I've decided not to send my kid to college so that I can buy your book, like jokes like that. And it's like, oh shit, you know, like this is like a, it's a, it's, a, it's not an inexpensive book, and I've heard from different people and publishing. I've got a, a friend who's an editor publisher, and he was like, "My costs have gone up fifty percent." And some people are saying one hundred for paper. And yeah. it's I think it's going to be a new normal. Unfortunately, I'm just sort of walking point on that suicide mission. It's like, <laughs> hey, soldier, would you know? It's like, <laughs> I, I I get to take take that initial hit, but. I would warn readers. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be something to start getting used to. I, I don't like it any more than anybody else, but there is some realities of, of the world right now and of publishing. So, yes, everything you said,
0: yeah, yeah. And uh, i and come twenty twenty five, like I am gonna, I have a, a book coming out through from Mariner Books, and I like yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of that too. I'm like, yeah, mine is probably going to be right in that ballpark, probably. Well who knows I mean you're talking it's gonna be a, about a year from now a little more a little more than two years from now so who know it, it could be fifty or fifty five by then so you just have to like you know gird well, yourself how, for that how
1: how many pages is yours do you think uh,
0: I'm hoping it's my goal is to be something about the size of yours um uh, okay. roughly so yeah.
1: yeah there I think a lot of this is happening in tiers where because you'll see a, mine was 512 pages, including the index and the blank pages at the back. It's about 400 and so of, of just text. And there were 800 page books that were the same, same price. Um, so anything under 500 you know, is like in a certain category. And then I have a, a, there's a writer acquaintance of mine who actually had the opposite thing happen, returned in a very short book. And the publisher was like, we can't charge more for this and you're right on the line. <laughs> so there, yeah, they, uh, just this is inside baseball for publishing, but that was the opposite problem. They were like, "You're this is a little too thin," like you know, and yeah, with the paper cost. So that's a calculus, but that's something that no reader thinks about. They just see a price. And and I was talking about this with a, a screenwriter friend. Some stories just want to be the length they want to be. And I have another friend talking about that. too yeah. He had written a novel, and his novel is like 800 pages. And I was like, you know, you're gonna have to get that down. And we talked about it for a long time. And he was like, you know, some stories just want to be the length they want to be. And I think about movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie, and it's like maybe three hours long. And I remember watching it thinking, it didn't need to be a minute shorter. Like I was into it. I was just into everything, right? Some people might disagree with me. And that came up with my book is I was, I kind of value myself on being pretty economical when I write. Like, Capsule summaries and trying to say the most in the the shortest space. And I did that with Wanderlust, but as I said before, you know, there's all these little rabbit holes in the story. Like here he is and this crazy place. Here he's meeting this crazy person. And there were a ton that I had to leave on the cutting room floor. Like he had this whole relationship with the early Miss Miss Like Universe pageant. <laughs> like all, all this stuff. <laughs> And there's, there's certain things I had to leave on the cutting room floor and the things that I kept in the book, I was probably cutting. And I'm, I think I'm one of the rare writers and I I had an editor once tell this to me. He was just like, you're one of the few people I'm like, you should actually expand on this a little bit more. Usually we're cutting people back we're cutting people back. Um, But you're going very, very, very brief on this. And there were a few parts of the book where, and I, I had great editors on this book, my main editor, he was like, you know, I kind of want more. Like, this is really interesting. Like I'm reading this section and I just want a little bit more just because I want to lose myself a little bit in this. And he was like, I never say this, but why don't you just kind of uh, expand a little bit? And so between drafts, I added all kinds of stuff. And then I got this comment back, very genuine. He was like, you know, I have to say a couple editors said this. They're like, this never happens this works better longer <laughs> just stick stick with it longer and yeah i you know it's a rare that's a rare thing i think usually people can say it shorter but in this case where you're dealing with a life you're dealing with a century um that is a comment i've gotten back on this book too a lot of people use that term lost like i got lost in this like it's just oh now i'm here and i'm there Digressive aggressive is sometimes used as a pejorative, but I actually really like it. You know, it's like in Moby Dick when he's got a whole chapter on like whale penises and you're like, this is great. you <laughs> just taking that <laughs> little, taking that little side detour. I, I kind of love that in book. There's an art to doing it and it's really tricky. Um, I love books that, that sometimes just take a break, go off to this place. And there's a way to tie it back to your main story and, and, you know, thematically or, you know, however you need to do it. Um, But I love that in books. So, yeah, stories want to be the length they want to be.
0: At what point in your when you're researching something, uh, do you have to eventually turn turn the faucet off and be like, you know, I I could probably go five years researching this, but eventually I do have to sit down to write. So at what point do you have to just be satisfied with what you've got and then and then write from there?
1: Yeah. And I have that tendency to want to exhaust the research just because I know I'm going to leave 90% of it on the cutting room floor. That's like that old saying about writing. It's like, well, how do you write a novel? It's like, well, it's like doing a sculpture of an elephant. You take a block of stone, you just chip away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. (laughs) 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 That's kind of like what writing a book like this is. I want to know, Everything I don't know, to, to paraphrase, you know, <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld of all people, but I want to know what I don't know. Um, so you want to just exhaust the topic, see all the angles, because sometimes, you know, you'll see something like, oh, that's really cool, but totally unexpected. I love finding those unexpected aha moments and then really working hard to try to jam them in something that might be a little contrarian or kind of swims upstream from the conventions or the orthodoxy on a, on, on a topic. But you don't know that until you just really go deep. And so, you know, when I, my second book, Wild Minds, is a history of, uh, you know, classic animation, these old cartoon studios and the rivalries between them. I would go through transcripts of old interviews with these guys, because they all died in a lot of cases before I was even born. And you're reading 100 pages and you're like, there was one paragraph of that entire transcript that I really needed, but it was a diamond in the rough. Yeah. So, as far as your question, when do you know? And, uh, you know, part of it's instinctive. You're just like, I know I have a lot, I've pretty much exhausted, you know, all of my angles. That's also why it's important. I think to take early manuscripts and get very knowledgeable readers and send it to them, like, what don't I know? So an example from this is I found a guy who kind of became a, a friend, David Welke. He wrote a book called a, A wretched and precarious situation. It was about the Macmillan expedition. And the Macmillan expedition was located just a little bit north of Freuchen in Greenland. And it was Americans. And I love to use it in the book as a way to kind of reveal a little bit about America at that time, as it was off in the world exploring. And Freuchen was friends with a lot of the members of the expedition or enemies with some of the other members of the expedition. There's a lot of great warm camaraderie there, but also some rivalry. So it's just, you know, it's good for the story. And Welkie wrote a whole book about this expedition that's really only going to feature in my book in a couple chapters. Welkie also has written books on Golden Age Hollywood. And I had been reading his book and going through his sources to find more sources for my own research. And, you know, I always like to call up people like that. So I reach out to him and we start having these phone conversations And he's and I sent him an early copy, like, what did I miss? You know, what did you know, what should I think about? And he was so great, because he had written about Golden Age Hollywood, he had written about polar exploration, we kind of, you know, there's a lot of resonance there. And there were a number of things he pointed out to me, that made the book much better, you know, that had just kind of gotten by my, gotten by me. So, it really illustrated me the importance of that finding true subject matter, especially when you're doing a book like mine, which has a lot of capsule summaries in it. A little similar, I would say like Bill Bryson's One Summer, lovely book, but it's about the summer of 1927. And he weaves together all these very unrelated things like the New York Yankees at that time, the Sacco and Panzetti trial, Charles Lindbergh taking the first flight over the Atlantic and he weaves it all together, but he's never going super deep, deep, deep in any of those topics. He's just, the beauty of the book is weaving them together and seeing how they all uh, relate to each other and existed in this very specific time frame. But there are whole books, many books written, you know, that go on much more about each of those little capsule summaries that he's putting together. And in my books, and especially in this one, I have a number of those kind of kind of summaries. So I would reach out to people who had written maybe a little more extensively on it. Um, just to have conversations with them. And that was part of my research process. It was very helpful.
0: Yeah, because there are moments too. So I'm deep into like newspapers.com right now and the mm-hmm. year I'm writing in. And it's just like going by certain states and then each county within a state. And then there might be, you know, 80 articles from this county and 40 from the other. And many of them are are repeats just yeah, okay, reports. yeah i'm very
1: familiar with that like ten thousand articles about Frank and when he wins a game show but they're all picked up off a wire service and all these exactly. small little yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of yeah it's a lot scene. of that
0: but then ev- somewhere along whatever in that pile of of garb like all that repeat you'll you'll find one that is like oh that's new or that that's a column that is giving a different degree of analysis or an, just an opinion or they they have a, a, they had access to a different quote and you're like, Oh shit, I went through a hundred and I found this awesome quote. And it makes you like, it drives you nuts because eventually you have to stop doing that because you're just going to run out of time. But the fact that you found that one, it's like that little positive reinforcement that you just, if you just keep digging and digging and digging, you're going to keep finding, you might find that one, Diamond in the Rough, as you said a moment ago, and it, it can drive you insane because you just want to keep on going because you might find that extra detail that no one else saw as you're trying to construct your biography or your narrative.
1: Needle in a haystack. It's like starting a march, you know, if you're I was in the military for a little bit after college, you know, you start a big long march and it's like, oh, I got to do it. You're looking at that newspapers.com, you know, read out, you're putting in your search terms and you get really good at using Boolean operators and all those kinds of things to try to refine your searches and be a little more sophisticated about it. But then you hit that point where it's like, all right, I just got to start shoveling. (laughs) You got your shovel in your hand and, you know, like, I just got to find the needle here in this pile. And you just got to power through you're like all right here i go (laughs) make sure i stay hydrated
0: (laughs) and a moment ago you said you just you know you you hate the writing and uh you know so let's let's unpack that a bit like why is writing uh so uh you know laborious and, and why do you hate it so much well i hate
1: it and love it like there are days where i'm having fun right you're putting it down and feeling good and then you finish and you're like wow this 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 came up pretty well and then you read it the next day and you're like i hate this i hate it yeah. it's no good. <laughs> and it's like but then you you know revise it and then you hate it a little less and so for me it's this process of revising until i can like deal with the hatred <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it's not that I I hate, you know, and it it can be a wonderful escape, like, okay, I'm going off to write, and I'm an introvert. And so I kind of enjoy being I I really like my introvertedness and really enjoys research, like I just get to explore and look into stuff and travel around and I love that. And the writing, the thing that really gets me about writing is, you know, that it can always be better. Or you'll do the thing. I'm constantly going to the bookshelf behind me and just pulling off a book while I'm writing and being like, well, how did they put together sentences? You know, this is getting into the nitty gritty of it. But, you know, just to kind of re... I had an editor once at a reporting gig who told me, he goes, yeah, when I'm writing a headline, I just pull up the New York Times. I always need to kind of jumpstart myself. Wait, How did you put together the headline again? You know, just because I have to remind myself of that, what, a thousand times? But it's just, you need that little spark. So I'm constantly... You know, if I hit a a moment where I'm like, let me just go refresh myself a little bit, take a walk, or just go read something that I feel like is put together. And then you realize if you really start digging into somebody else's writing, you're like, they're actually not that smooth here. Like this, this sentence could have been better. But me as a reader, I just kind of skated over that. And then you realize, okay, I'm being a little bit too hard on myself. But for me, it's just you want the thing to sing and you want the reader to kind of forget that you're writing. And just okay. sort of be, be lost in it. And so that to me is what I mean by when I say, I hate it is cause you know, that it can be better. I can organize my thoughts better. How should this be structured? And when you're really in the writing, you're waking up at three in the morning, sometimes with a sentence in your head and you're like, it's like an you need an exorcism. It's like, just stop, just stop. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. 100%. And and given that you you said you're introverted by nature, I'm I'm the same. I'm something of a of a shy introvert as well. And what drives me, what gives me innumerable belly aches and anxiety, is just is cold calling and and even just making phone calls. I just have a I just have a lot of stress and anxiety around it. and I hate doing. It. I'll do anything I can in my power to put off picking up the phone. And um, I wonder for you, like, the, do you have any? struggles with that and if you do how do you kind of overcome it but you know just there's, there's muscling through and then sometimes it's just maybe you have some uh <laughs> advice for people like myself who have a hard time making cold calls
1: i personally don't have a problem with it you know everyone's different um i am an introvert by nature but introverted in the way of i just get restorative energy by sometimes being by myself, I do not mind or dislike being around people I actually like it, I do need it. Um, So I enjoy sometimes picking up the phone, because I can have a human, you know, writing is so lonely. Yeah, that part of it, just picking up the random phone and reaching out to another author, I kind of see it sometimes as water cooler chats, like we don't get to have water cooler chats, like a lot of people do. So this is, and I found that other writers, they just want to talk too because like, oh, we just we're both cloistered away, not not talking to people. I had a job in college after my freshman year, doing door to door sales, like eighty hours a week. Oh yeah, I had a heat stroke. I had a, got guns pulled on me. I mean, I was down in Texas, like rural Texas, like not far from Louisiana, doing it around Houston. And so I, you know, there'd be neighborhoods where I remember people warning me away, like, oh, don't, don't go there. Those people aren't on the census. (laughs) Like those people aren't like going into Bayou country. And sure enough, it's like, you'd go in and it would be like, what, what, I don't understand what you're saying. It's like, you know, pigeon English kind of stuff. It's, it's really like, there's, and this is in the nineties. And I think maybe it got beat out of me. And I remember being so nervous in the mornings, like, you'd almost want to throw up. Like, I'm going to go knock on doors i'm going to be so maybe that just beat it out of me where i kind of got a fearlessness where i will just go talk to talk to people because i was sort of forced to by the job i needed to make money so i don't have that problem i'm, I'm sorry yeah sorry you do no. I, I wish i had a, a trick for you know it's like the way you know people listen to i remember reading you know daniel day lewis would listen to eminem before playing bill the butcher in gangs of new york it's like i psych psyched himself up huh. um I wish there was some sort of trick like that to just, okay, you know, shadow box a little bit before you make that call, kind of get your energy up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things where it, just the more you do it, the more comfortable you get doing it. And then Mm -hmm. when you have a nice, a nice conversation, like, Oh wow, that was not nearly as bad as I had built it up in my head. Like in my head, I'm like, everyone is going to pick up the phone and be like, Oh, fuck you. I'm not talking about him. I'm tired of talking about him. You're a fucking vulture. Get out of my sight. Like that's the voice in my head as I'm making these calls. And then oftentimes I get, I get them on the phone. they be like, Oh yeah, cool. I'd love to talk. Let's set up a time. And it's never as bad. And it's it's just a matter of doing that over and over and over again. Be like, Okay, you know, yeah, maybe you are going to get that worst case scenario, but it's probably on the way on the right side of the bell curve. And most people are going to be like, Yeah, sure. Let let's chat. See, yeah, what
1: you're saying right there. That's actually very that that antagonistic negative response you know, if you're covering someone who's maybe controversial or something like that, I, I I can see that, but that in my experience is actually very rare. The opposite is usually true. people love to talk about things that they know about or things that they're interested in. And you just kind of stay quiet and they'll just go and go and go. They love that chance. So it's usually for me, pretty, pretty fun, pretty warm. Like I find that the reception is actually, you know, pretty good. Um, also, you know, my last couple of books, especially it's been about people who are not only dead, but have been dead a while and the people who all knew them are dead. So a lot of my research has, has to be archival. I mean, I will talk to other his, you know, historians or, or people who knew them or family members. The awkward thing for me is when you run into someone who really doesn't know anything about the topic and you just are kind of sitting there. Like I've had family yeah. members of some of these subjects and they were like, and you realize like they don't really know. They don't, they actually just don't know. Like, you know, I'm sitting here coming to them for insights and yeah, they're related to the person, but they don't, they don't, you know, they never yeah, know exactly. personally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And some people I, I've spoken to as who were like tied to my central figure and like, Oh, what do you remember about this? She's like, I just, you know, a lot of this stuff is about 50 or 55 years ago and there's, I just don't remember. I don't, I, I, the, I don't know. Oh, I, yeah, I don't remember that person. I might bring up, oh, that sounds like you were, you know, this person who was there, but like, oh yeah. They just, it's, it's just, memory gets very slippery. And, um, it's so, some of my conversations kind of like yours are get a little awkward. Be like, okay, what do you remember about this? If I was running beside you, what would I be seeing? And they're like, uh, I I have no idea. I have no memory of it at all, And then I'm like, all right, well, five minutes have gone by. I can see this is not going anywhere. So let's uh, I'll uh, we'll circle back if i if I have to uh if I remember anything else or can come to you for something else, or if you remember something, feel free to call me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the memory being slippery stuff, like it is for everything, and that's something I remember too. is that with nonfiction, there's an attitude sometimes among you know, readers, or reviewers or sometimes writers where this book is absolute truth. You know, this is, you know, it's like a, a police report or something, you know, just the facts. But I always remember, this is always going to be filtered through my perspective. Every book you've ever read is filtered through someone's perspective and their biases. And so I embrace that a little bit. It's the way like, you know, Marines and Secret Service agents are all taught to run towards the gunfire. They're like The only people that do that, uh, everybody else runs away from gunfire. But whenever I encounter that, like a lot of writers I know get bound up a little bit like, oh no, like I won't be able to find this absolute truth. And you're like, well, it really doesn't necessarily exist. Like no one really knows. So embrace that, embrace, because you know, Franken, he could be a tall tale teller and he could be a rank into his prankish. He liked to, you know, mm-hmm. when he would tell stories later about some of his expeditions, he might throw into detail or, and I found that overall the larger framework of all of his stories was true. Uh, but there was sometimes a little detail in there where he was pulling your leg just a little bit. That would really bug the hell out of a lot of writers because it's like I need to determine yes or no, black or white, you know, very binary. And I use that to try to illustrate him as a person like, yeah, we don't know for sure, but it was one of these events. You know, it's the like, same thing happened in my second book, The Wild Minds Walt Disney is a character in there. And Walt told something like six different stories about how Mickey Mouse came to be. And so to me, that wasn't something to be frustrated by, like, oh, we won't know the absolute truth. But it really reveals something about him, like for different audiences, you tell a different story, and it ultimately tied back to his creating myth. And he was a myth maker, he was a storyteller. And so here he is just always changing the story and stories were loose to him, they were adaptable. Like that's, that's really how it is. And Everyone has their different perspective of events as they happened on the ground as well. They have their perspective of how a person is. It's like, you know, in your own personal life, you'll meet people like, well, that person's a jerk, or, oh, well, that person's great. You know, people just have different opinions. So I try to keep my writing about such things. I embrace the ambiguity instead of running away from it. Um, I think it scares a lot of people off, but I'm like, I think it can actually support the story if you just acknowledge it and work with it instead of trying to battle
0: battle with it right it, that kind of reminds me of in uh you know, the dark knight the batman movie with heath ledger as the joker and he's just it, he talks to various people he's like did i ever tell you how i got these scars and he he goes into a different story each time about how he did it And one's like my father was a bit of a drinker and the other one is like, I had a beautiful wife, and her face got cut. Out. She got in deep with the sharks, and they cut up her face. Yeah. And you know, and and the, and, yeah, so- and the
1: important thing there, it's not how he got the scars; it's the fact that he makes up all these different stories about the scars. What's that say about him, his psychology, his mindset? To me, that's the important thing: the fact that he's always changing the story. It's not necessarily the specific details of those. In some cases, yes, the specific details are are important, but that other thing is just as important and just it's and in a lot of cases more interesting. And I'm always trying to find the interesting thing.
0: Well, Reed, I want to be mindful of your time. And as I always bring these conversations down for a landing, I like to ask, ask the the guest for a recommendation for the listeners and it can be just anything you're excited about. So I'll extend that to you. Uh, you know, what, uh, what might you recommend for the listeners out there?
1: Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this and for me as a reader, I've been struggling in recent years sometimes to find books to, to read in that way where like a friend will come up to me and say, you know, did you hear about this book? And I am someone who looks at publishers' catalogs. I read review sections, book review sections, and it'll still be something that got kind of past my radar. I'm like, how did that happen? How did I miss this? This is a book right up my alley, you know, or whatever. And especially now I see in book review culture, it's a little bit of a monoculture growing up around it. A lot of things Mm -hmm. in recent years have been very gloomy. And I think we've been through a lot in this nation in the past five, six years, and social media certainly hasn't helped any of that. And it can be very gloomy. And I I was looking at new books that are out, especially in the fiction space. And I think at one point I counted in some publisher's catalog, the word trauma used in like, like four out of six book descriptions. And I'm just sort of like, you kind of want to go in and be like, for some of these book sections at, 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 especially old legacy kind of media outlets, you kind of want to like open the curtains and be like, come on, let's go for a walk. Let's get some sunshine in here, you know, like, and and then publishers too. And I've done a little bit of writing for Airmail and Airmail's book section is lovely. It kind of reminds me of some of my favorite book sections from maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It's a little more eclectic. They choose books that I'm not always seeing reviewed elsewhere. And I don't know why, because it'll be a really well-written book by a great author. Um, It's not a very long book section. It's just a few things every week delivered on your weekend. And they'll have these delightful interviews, but they, they have a light touch. And I really appreciate the light touch. They find stuff that's just kind of, fun but also smart and isn't just dragging me through constant you know constant mud I actually in preparation for this question I I figured you're gonna ask it. I actually cut this out and put it on the wall but there was a letter to the editor in the New York Times a couple years ago and he writes reading was once known this is a guy named Bruce Watson from Massachusetts and he wrote to the editor reading was once known as a great escape and he quotes Emily Dickinson. He says, there's no frigate like a book to take us lands away. And he goes, and I turned to the book review to find books that will sail me far from our sinking ship of state. Yet your last two issues reviewed books on. And he just goes off on this list, you know, Brick Cowell in Afghanistan, stalkers, pervs and trolls. Migration literature, ocean piracy, women crime and obsession, hashtag me too, and more. And he goes, Can't the book review find a few more frigates out there? And I just I laughed when I saw it because I've had so many conversations with friends where about this exact this exact thing. And so I've really enjoyed the the book reviews in Airmail, because they have that lighter touch. They're 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 finding books that are frigates. And I have uh, I've really appreciated that. And it's a it's a great read on the weekend to find. Find new stuff to read.
0: Oh, that's awesome i love. it a few more frigates, and I would I yeah. would certainly put Wanderlust on on the frigate list for sure because I think it echoes so much about our current time from an, from a bygone era and just a wildly cool guy that as the vector to tell the story and you do it masterfully. So I just gotta say thank thank you for the work uh, that you've done and uh, you know thanks for taking a, taking an hour and coming on the show, Reed.
1: Thanks for having me on. This has been great, and I, I love the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks for listening, CNFers. Thanks to Reed for first reaching out, pitching his book, and coming on the show. Team Mariner Books, am I right? Again, he's at Reed Mittenbuehler on Twitter and at Mittenbuehler on Instagram. The name of the book, again, is Wanderlust. I've been neck deep, maybe even nose deep, in Prefontaine research, and I realize how different or more concrete my book proposal could have been, had I shown a similar degree of rigor for the proposal in terms of the research, and maybe it wouldn't have been quite as drawn out a process. You know, questions that my agent had might have had more satisfactory answers, and I would have bought myself a few more months to actually do the book research and interview people, which is proving to be, of yeah, it takes a long time. And not every interview gleans like tremendously great insights so you might spend a half an hour on the phone with someone and it's just like either they don't have a memory of it or they don't they just have a very a very simplistic memory or feeling and it's just like yeah that doesn't really make the cut anyway so now you don't want to do too much research early on because you don't know if the deal will be in place and you don't want to waste all that time that said the more research you do, the more confident you become in the material. It's like devel- the developing solution in old school photography, if you're in the dark room with that red light going. The more articles you read or, or skim and catalog, certain dates in the timeline emerge as these tentpole events of a life. There's naturally a, a sag in between in time, on the timeline between tentpoles, and you only really see this. By diving into the archives, be it physical or online, there is so many there are a lot of story beats that I just didn't realize were there in the first place. And you realize that when, you know, uh dozens of newspapers are covering the same thing and you get quotes from here, different quotes from here, weather from here, you're like, okay, that's a moment. And it's not really a waste of time. And you think about it, you either front load the proposal and find out how much there is there. Or you start to see the spine of a narrative and um, two things start to happen. Either there's a lot there and you're more poised to write a dynamite proposal and thus a great book you can deliver on, or you spend a month or two finding out that there isn't really anything there and you can abort and find the next book. In a sense, there's no waste of time at all. Maybe that's the big lesson. I got stuck in thinking, and this is a big mistake now that I look at it in hindsight, that I didn't want to do too much research too early in the process because I didn't want to waste my time in the event that the deal was not going to go through. But you know what happened? The proposal process, necessary as it was, dragged on for a year. Had I been more aggressive in research and cataloging my articles and finding those more of those narrative beats, the process might have taken maybe six months. And oh my gosh, right now I am... My deadline is April 15th, 2024, and what I'd give for six more months. As I am now aggressively making phone calls, still having to do the newspaper stuff and magazine stuff, but it's uh, making several calls a day, something I fucking hate. I'll talk about that next week. I'm just not good enough. I don't like phones. I don't like making phone calls. Anyway, so yes, research... As if you already have the deal in place. I guess that's kind of like manifesting, too. You know, it's a little woo-woo, but it's just like, why even put the thought in me? Like, oh, I don't know if I should research this. It might not come through. Like, maybe you should research. Like, yeah, this thing is going to happen. I'm going to need this research anyway. Might as well go all in. You need that research. Or or soon, you, know, you may maybe you'll find over the course of that research, a month or two, you're like, ah, this seems like a good idea. Let me spend a month or two just <clears throat> in it. And you might find that there's not enough to sustain a book. And then you pivot. And you maybe take that material and you read a magazine article or a newspaper article. Or maybe nothing at all. And in the end, you only wasted, oh, let's say, a month or two of research. And you might have saved yourself some time in the long run. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do interviews, see ya.